Amen. Thank you, worship team. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I'm excited to continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are going to make it through the end of chapter 1 today. Uh, chapter 1 is actually a pretty, uh, pretty long chapter, so we've taken quite a few sermons in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist this morning. The title of the sermon is, His Name is John, as you can see. And notice that we'll talk more about this as we move through the text, but the instructions here, the way that we've, this is even framed, it's not that his name will be called John. Zechariah actually says his name is John. You see, this kid has already been named. The angel actually took that out of his parents' hands, which is a pretty amazing insight into what's going on here. We all know the saying, hindsight is what? 2020. I laughed during the year of 2020 how many Vision 2020 plans we had for businesses and churches and things like that. Vision 2020, that didn't exactly work out quite like we thought it would. But we can look back and say hindsight is 2020. It's true enough. In Charles Wendall's book, Growing Deeper, he gives an illustration that I thought was helpful. He says this, history tells us that in the 19th century, the whole world was watching the campaigns of Napoleon. There was talk everywhere of marches, invasions, battles, bloodshed as the French dictator pushed his way through Europe. Babies were born during that time, but who had time to think about babies or to care about cradles and nurseries? Well, somebody should have. Let's take the year 1809. Internationally, everyone was looking at Austria. But looking back, only a few history buffs could name any of Napoleon's campaigns. I couldn't. Don't know if you could or not. Some of you probably could. But consider the births that year in 1809. William Gladstone, who would become one of the premier spokesmen, one of the finest statesmen that England ever produced. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809. It was also that year that there was a doctor and his wife, Dr. Darwin, who had a son they named Charles. Charles Darwin, born in 1809. In that same year, none other than Abraham Lincoln was also born in 1809. We can look at those births and we can see how those events ended up shaping history in profound ways. In a similar way, no one in the Roman Empire could have cared less about the birth of that Jewish infant in Bethlehem. And I would add, let alone John, later known as John the Baptizer. Rome ruled the world. That's where history was being made, or was it? I think it's a fair question. I think Swindoll here captures somewhat of the sense of what Luke is feeling in these birth narratives. We've talked about this a number of times because what Luke does here is he bounces back and forth between the pregnancy announcement, the birth narrative, and the reactions that are going on with the people, both with the mothers, with Elizabeth, and with Mary, and then also Luke doesn't focus so much on Joseph, but uh, Matthew does, and then we also have Zechariah, the priest, Elizabeth's husband, and we have his reaction this morning to the birth of his son. These stories are really spectacular in their own right, but they let us know there's something happening in the world. There's something happening that's very unusual, and they have a sense of the significance of this. It's been a pattern by the Lord in the Old Testament, especially. You can see it. 
The people cry out for a deliverer, and God sends a baby. And we've laughed about that before because when we're, you're really in need of deliverance and you're really in a tough spot, babies are cute, but they are not that helpful as far as delivering you from military might, correct? They're actually quite a bit of work, as most of you are aware. And they don't really contribute that much to society until much, much later on. They're cute. I'll say it again. They are. But they're kind of messy, kind of smelly, and they don't really do a lot for you. So God says, I hear your cries. Here's a baby. (laughs) Well, that only compounds the problems, right? (laughs) Now I just have another person to care for. But this is how the Lord has worked. It's a slow process. God's deliverance, God's plan takes years, decades, centuries, even millennia to develop. God's very patient in the way he's bringing about his plan and working on planet Earth. And so with that sense of history and sense of timing of where they are, we now join Elizabeth and her husband, and we're going to read about the birth of John the Baptist. Of course, he was called John. He was named John. He was later distinguished as John, the one who baptizes. So we call him John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't on his birth certificate. That wasn't how it works. But we distinguish him from other Johns in the Bible by calling him the baptizer, the Baptist. So that's John the Baptist. I want to read the first part of this, the birth narrative. And then in a moment, we'll read Zechariah's prophecy called the Benedictus. Verse 57 Luke chapter 157. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And on all these things were talked about all through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Amazing story. Let's catch up and remember what is going on with Zechariah. Zechariah is the priest. Luke's gospel opens up profiling him. He's older. His wife is said to be old and barren at this point. And then the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah as he goes in, probably a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing for him to offer incense before the Lord in the temple. He was selected amongst many hundreds, perhaps even thousands of priests chosen by Lot. He happened to be there at that particular day when the angel visited with him. Of course, there's no coincidences. This was all planned. He receives instruction there that your wife is going to have a child in her old age. Now, this is a little bit beyond the mid-40s, oh, surprise type of thing. She's old, like grandmother age, great aunt age, and she's never been able to have a child, and now she's going to have a child. So Zechariah doubts the prophecy. How's this going to work? This doesn't seem possible. He doubts the prophecy, and he asks the angel for a sign. 
Gabriel, give me a sign that this is going to happen. Gabriel says, you got it. Until the baby gets here, you're not going to be able to speak. I don't think that was a sign exactly that Zechariah had in mind. That's when he gets, though. He's unable to speak. And so that brings us into our text here this morning. So the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth. The neighbors and friends are gathered around. You may remember that after Elizabeth receives this word, she becomes pregnant, and she secludes herself for about five months, it tells us, probably about the time for a baby to start to show. And so Zechariah has this experience in the temple. Something happens. He comes out. He can't communicate with people. They don't know what's going on. He goes home to his wife. They shut themselves off from the world for five months. And people think, this is a strange way to start the next stage of God's redemptive history. The two people that actually know what's happening here are secluded. What in the world's going on? But we see that God is patient. He's bringing about this program and plan. So surrounded by friends and family, they go on the eighth day, and they go on the eighth day to circumcise the child. And this is in obedience to what had been prescribed for them in the Old Testament law. We'll take this in three different parts. When God visits responses to the birth of John, we see obedience, we see wonder, and then we see praise in the song of Zechariah. Obedience, wonder, and praise. So they take the child, John, and they take him on the eighth day to be circumcised. You might remember that circumcision was originally instituted with Abraham, Genesis 17. You can read about that. It was the covenant sign, and Abraham was instructed, your offspring are all to take the covenant sign. And this becomes a major, major issue in the Old Testament. I know some of you have joined us in reading through the Bible in a year, and we're reading about some of that right now with the circumcision. And it was even an insult. It came to be an insult later. Yeah, that when David taunts Goliath and said, and he's talking about Goliath, and he says, "Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It, he's not a covenant member. Why are you letting this guy rule the battlefield? Who is this person? An uncircumcised Philistine?" So this was common. This was the sign that you were part of God's covenant community. The eighth day was also prescribed, Leviticus 12.3, and on the eighth day of the, the flesh of the male foreskin shall be circumcised. So this is, was the prescription. This is how it worked. And there was a bit of a ceremony that would take place, and there's different, differing accounts of exactly when and how this all worked, but there was a ceremony, and uh, a little bit obviously different because physically of what's going on, but a little bit like a baptism type of thing, that there was be a, a profession of sorts of and a recognition of God's covenant. And so this is, explains the family and friends and relatives who have gathered up for this to remember God's covenant and God's faithfulness. And perhaps in that day and time in that region, we don't know this for sure, the tradition had become to announce the name of the child then um, as well. So the name is associated here with this event of the circumcision on the eighth day. We don't know that was always practiced in quite that way, but it very well could have been. And so a debate comes up about the name. Verse 59, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. So it was tradition to go after the family name, right? I know we have some juniors and seniors even amongst us here. Some of you are probably juniors and seniors that I wouldn't even know about. 
That can lead to some confusion. I can't tell you how many times I've texted the wrong Brannon around here. It happens. But it was normal. My name is Alan. My uncle's middle name was Alan, and many of you have family names that are embedded in your names as well. Names tended to go that way, passed down generation to generation. So they just assumed, hey, Zachariah, your son's going to be Zachariah Jr., right? And his wife, Elizabeth, speaks up and says, no, his name is John. We're going to call him John. Now, I don't know how things worked in y'all's families, but when mama spoke out on the name, that was usually settled the case for most people in most situations, right? Mama says that's his name. Like, you're, who argues with mom at the eighth day of, like, naming your child? But hey, different culture, different world here. I wouldn't pick that fight, but, you know, you might want to. She says, no, he's going to be called John. It doesn't make any sense to them. Why are you calling him John? And the reason, of course, they're interacting with her is because Zechariah is unable to interact because his speech is still closed off. And so there's a theory, and this is probably true, the more I think about it and look into it, that Zechariah not only lost the ability to speak, but he probably lost the ability to hear as well. That's very well part of this because of what happens in verse 62. And they made signs to his father, so they're playing this game of charades with him, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So that it, it's very likely, we don't know for sure, but the language and vocabulary that's used, it could very well be that he couldn't hear either. Um, he definitely was mute. And so they inquired about him, and so he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. Now, it's interesting because his wife, Elizabeth, said, we shall call him John. Zachariah says, no, his name is John. This is already settled. He's already been named. I'm just telling you what his name is. Interesting. So uh, this tablet idea, I was curious exactly how that worked and operated. They didn't have exactly like notepads, you know, like we could pull out in a big pen. Didn't work that way. So it probably looks something like this. They would take a little piece of wood and you would melt wax over it. And you could take like a stylus sort of thing and you could inscribe something on there onto the tablet. And this was probably something like this that he asked for. And then he was able to write his name is John on there. Now, we've all had times in our life where you probably couldn't find the right words to come out when you're trying to explain something. We've all had that moment and experience. Maybe you've had moment or experience. Maybe you're in the hospital, and maybe because of been intubated or something like that, you can't really speak. Uh, there's something you really want to say, but you just can't say it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. This is definitely what's going on with Zachariah at this point. He's dying to weigh in on this conversation, and the only way he can do that is through this tablet. And he says, his name is John. Now, I think part of what's going on here is this is telling us about the second chance here that Zechariah gets. You remember when he receives word that his wife is going to have a baby, he doubts that is going to be true. He's not going to mess this one up. And I think part of the reason he's so insistent, and we've got to be careful reading between the, the, reading in the white space of our Bibles. We don't want to build too much out of that. But it is interesting because the angel had told him back in Luke 1.20, 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I think probably Zechariah expected that when the baby was born, he would be able to speak again, right? I think that's a logical kind of inference from what's going on here. You'll be silent and unable to speak until these things take place. But the angel didn't actually say until what exactly these things were. I probably would have assumed. So you can imagine, put ourselves back in their sandals, you know, 2,000 years ago. The baby's born. You're like, hey, husband, going into labor. Baby's born. You're thinking, because you can't say it, this is great. (laughs) I've been closed up in my own mind for the last nine months. And then the baby comes and you... You're clapping your hands and you just can't say anything about it, though. How frustrating would that be? This is eight days later. Now, eight days wasn't that long in comparison to the nine months already that he had endured. But eight days of not being able to speak, not being able to interact with your child, not being able to interact with your wife, not, it, it would definitely have an impact. So I think probably Zechariah has learned his lesson at this point. And he's thinking, all right, what did I... What else needs to happen here so that I can speak again, so that I can interact with people? Oh, yeah. He said his name is going to be John. His name is John. And so I think he's, he's jumping up and down at this point going, don't you name that kid something else? <laughs> like, don't, don't let that happen. I think there's a sense of urgency about what's going on. And then we see that it's at the naming, which is taking place at the circumcision event, and immediately... His mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. He gets it right this time. It's a story of a second chance for an old priest who doubted God. He doesn't doubt him now. (laughs) He's all in. He believes him. He does exactly. He gets it right. I think this says something to us. God is God who gives us more and more and more chances to serve him, doesn't he? Anybody get it perfectly right this week? Perfectly obedient to the Lord. Took advantage of every gospel opportunity that you were given. Anybody get it perfect? This won't apply to you if you did. For the rest of us mortals here this morning, I think we all know. We've doubted. We've doubted God. We've complained. We've been lazy. Entertained impure thoughts, perhaps. Harbored unforgiveness, bitterness. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. God is calling us today. Obey him today. Do what you know to be right today. Throw the past aside. Walk with him today. Doesn't mean things don't have consequences. Doesn't mean those things are all forgotten. But it does mean that you can walk in obedience to the Lord now. Make the next, make your next move the right move according to God and his word. All right, so when God visits, we see obedience. And really we see that through two different ways here. We see obedience, first of all, to the law of God to follow his prescribed law in bringing John for circumcision. We also see obedience in Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth in naming him, a non-conventional naming method. So what else happens when God visits? There's wonder. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. What in the world is going on? 
when true work of God happens in the Bible, every time it happens in the Bible, what we see is that people aren't glib and aren't making jokes. What we see is that a true work of God brings a certain sense of sobriety. When God visits, visits his people at Sinai, what happens? The people, they back up and they say, Moses, you go talk to God. Don't let him do that again because he had boomed out his voice and it scared them all to death. And they take a step back and they put Moses forward and says, you mediate for us. Don't let that happen again. It's a good thing, but it's a terrible thing at the same time. Terrible in the sense of awe-inspiring. When God works in human history, it is a good and a terrible thing. And I don't mean terrible in the sense of bad. I mean terrible in the sense of awesome, awe-inspiring. This is what happens. One of my former pastors that I worked with, he used to say, nobody giggles their way into the kingdom of God. I like that phrase. Nobody giggles their way into the kingdom. There's just a certain sense of sobriety about what we do in the gospel. I, I love to joke. I think I'm pretty funny. My family sometimes disagrees. My daughter told me the other day, Dad, do you, do you realize you always laugh the hardest at your own jokes? I said, yeah, because they're the funniest, right? This is self-evident, isn't it? So I, I, I get it. We can all have a sense of humor. Uh, we try. It, it, I, I am totally on board with that. But there just has to be a time. There just has to be a time in life when you cut away the distractions and you do serious business with the Lord without all the other distractions that are going on. There's something happens here that people recognize this is, a, this is a sober moment. Fear came on all the neighbors when Zechariah starts to speak again. And they talked about all these things to the hill country of Judea. So you see what's happened. This seed has been growing for a little while. You remember, it didn't make a lot of sense. If you only had the first part of the story, this priest receives a prophecy that his wife and he who are older are going to have a baby. He's unable to talk. She secludes herself. The end. What if you didn't have anything past that? The story doesn't make a lot of sense. We see God is developing this story, and it takes time for it to develop. But now here we are. It's all taken place, and it says this word is beginning to spread all throughout the region of Judea. Everywhere, people are talking about this. The Lord is at work again. It's an amazing, amazing story, amazing moment. So let's move on. What happens when God visits obedience to the Lord? Wonder at what God is doing and how he's been faithful to his word, and then praise for God. And here we get into Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus, and we'll pull out some principles from this. This could be really a series in its own. Uh, we did look at this uh, a couple of years ago, and we looked at all the different songs from Luke's gospel. The Magnificat, we've already talked about, which was Mary's song, and then the next one here is Zechariah's song, and then there's a couple more that we'll get to a little bit later as we work through the gospel of Luke. This is really a beautiful reflection. We don't know if Zechariah composed this immediately. Maybe he had been working on this during his time of silence, perhaps, and he says, hey, wrote a little something for y'all, listen up, right after he was able to speak, 
We don't know exactly when this came about, but we know it's a reflection on God and his work and what he was doing. So what can we see from this? And again, this, this could be mined out for a long, long time, but I'll pull some principles out that we can see very clearly. Praise for God is one, it's rooted in covenant history. Notice what happens. Let me read the whole Benedictus, Benedictus down to verse 79. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the Benedictus. First thing we see is that they are interpreting and understanding what's going on in light of God's previous promises. And I think this is always the correct way to understand and interpret the Bible. What has the Bible said about these issues? How do we put a biblical frame around what's going on? Notice he speaks of two people. He speaks of David, and then he speaks of Abraham. Here in verse 69, he talks about David, and then in verse 73, he mentions Abraham. I'll just put a couple of references here. We could take, a, again, another Sunday and explore what these covenant promises exactly were and how they worked. But David is many years later than Abraham, but he mentions David first, so we'll take that one first. You might remember that David was God's king. Who was, he was the, uh, the greatest king that Israel ever had. He came after Saul, and his son Solomon would succeed him. And David wanted to build a house for God. David, they were now in the land. They were no longer wandering in the wilderness. They had a tabernacle, which was the meeting place between God and man, but it was a tent. It was temporary, and it was mobile. They picked it up and moved it. And so they had landed this thing, and it had been there for a while, the tabernacle. And David says, I want to build you a permanent house. We're living in permanent houses now. We're not living in tents anymore, so there's no reason for God to live in a tent. We need to build God a temple, a real, proper place for his dwelling. And so David wants to do this for the Lord. And God says, you're not going to be the one to do that, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a house for my servant David. The Lord, I will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. Your son, you're going to collect the materials, and your son Solomon is actually going to build the house. And so in this, we, 2 Samuel 7, we have this Davidic covenant. And then with Abraham, he also mentions Abraham. We should mention in verse 69, he's... Verse 68, the God of Israel, he's visited, he's redeemed his people. This is in line with how God has operated in the past to redeem Israel and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, 
This idea of the horn of salvation, it's not familiar to us. When you think horn, you probably think of somebody driving behind you on the road or you're sitting at a stoplight, you're not paying attention, you're looking at your phone and somebody beeps at you. That's never happened to any of you, I'm positive, but you've probably done it to somebody else um, at some point. So that's not the horn that's being talked about. It's not a trumpet or trombone kind of horn. This was a, a sign like, a, like, like the longhorn steer. They just kind of have a certain austerity about them, right? Have certain dignity as they stand up and they just kind of look full of themselves a little bit to me. I'm just kind of standing there like, yeah, look at these. And, and so that's the idea of the horn of salvation, the, the, the majesty. This is the idea. The horn of salvation. And it's linked specifically in the house of his servant, David. His servant David. So he links back to this covenant promise, the house of David that's being built now is continuing on in the birth, specifically, of the Messiah. You see how it works. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Now, the next mention is to Abraham, rooted in this covenant promise, the covenant to Abraham. This is first noted in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'll read a few of those verses. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see in this Abrahamic promise, there's really three things that happen. There's promise of land, descendants, and redemption and blessing. The redemption and blessing sort of go together. So the entirety of the Bible really is built around this idea that God has made promises and he's making good on those promises. And so now, Zechariah, people of the first century, are interpreting and understanding that this is the fulfillment of the promise. So praise of God is rooted in his history of promise and fulfillment. Next, praise for God is motivating for the mission. Look at verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. You may have noticed a couple of times he talks about deliverance from enemies. We're going to be delivered from our enemies. And the purpose of deliverance from enemies here is not simply that they could have a good life, that they could be comfortable, well compensated, a good 401k and nice health care. It's not that... You're going to be delivered from your enemies so that you can serve. That was the whole point, so that you may may serve him without fear. These enemies are going to be vanquished from you eventually so that you can serve God. This was the whole point. In the Exodus story, there's so much going on underneath this that's really supported by the Exodus story. You remember initially when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go so that what? they can go serve their God out in the wilderness. We want to go away for a few days so that we can serve God. And that becomes really the point of the Exodus story. Not just so that we're not slaves anymore. It's not just that. It's so that we may serve. So that's how it works. God's deliverance is tied to participation in the mission. Tied to participation in the mission. Next, 
we see that this praise is centered on Christ. It's centered on Christ. Look at verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Something interesting here. Remember who is Zechariah? Whose dad? John's dad, right? The first part of this song that he wrote isn't actually about his son, John. It's about Christ. It's about the Messiah. And he just now gets to talking about Christ. I think this is a great, maybe subtle reminder for all of us as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. Your kids are awesome, but there's one more awesomer, and that's Christ. My dad used to drive me crazy. If you followed my dad around and heard him talk about me, you would think I was the greatest human being ever since Jesus, maybe. And I appreciated that on the one hand, but at the same time, I'm like, I can't really live up to whatever you're telling people about me. I appreciate it, but it's a, it's a good subtle reminder. Imagine the bumper stickers that, you know, Elizabeth and Mary could have stuck on the back of their minivans, <laughs> you know, forerunner to the Messiah, Messiah. Um, like, that's pretty good. But he, he notices and, and Zechariah realizes the role that his son is going to play. It's not about John. It's about Christ, and it's about the role that he's going to play in redemptive history. John understands this. He understands it very well, especially over in the Gospel of John, which is a different John, as we've mentioned. But John the Evangelist, writing about John the Baptist, and he relays this story as Jesus and his ministries both begin to grow. John's ministry starts first. He has quite a following, and actually some of his people start going over to Jesus' camp. And there could have been an opportunity for some competition there. Like, hey, John, you were on the scene first. These guys are going over to Jesus' camp. Your relative, what are you going to do about that? What's John say? He must increase. I must decrease. You see, this isn't about me. This isn't about me. The whole thing that I've done, my whole ministry, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is all about Christ. And so, amazingly, what we have is the prophecy here of Zechariah, this song that Zechariah sings in response to the birth of his son is about the role he will play in getting us to Christ. It's all about Christ. He plays a preparatory role. Notice in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is a big deal, this little term. We might just skip past that and not really think about it. He's called a prophet. There hasn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. This is a big deal. Leon Morris, one commentator, this is when a scholar gets really excited. All right, y'all ready for this? This is scholarly excitement at level 10. There had been no prophet among the Jews for centuries, so the words should not be taken too calmly. All right, that's scholarly excitement there for you. Don't take these words too calmly. <laughs> I read that and just started laughing. I'm like, that is a scholar that's telling you, you need to really get into this. Um, no exclamation points, just like, hey, big deal, you should look into this. And so that's what we have, this voice, the prophetic voice is now being spoken again in Israel, and it's going to be through John. John is going to be a prophet. 
We talked about that a little bit this morning in our equipping hour class about the role that different people had and the significance of that. Something else we talked about in our equipping hour, and I appreciate it if you weren't able to be here with us this morning, I recommend that you find uh, Adam's lesson this morning at 9 o'clock. It's on our uh, YouTube page, or you can find it on the website. And it was really helpful looking at this idea of um, really being able to discern and spot teaching that is false and inaccurate. I was very helped by that, and I hope that you will be as well. And I think we have a similar kind of thing here, and we didn't coordinate this at all, but look at what happens. Verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go, by the Lord, go before the Lord and prepare his ways. And then verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. In the forgiveness of their sins. Praise of the Lord and the gospel message has to be honest and open and deal with the problem of sin. If we try to camouflage the issue of sin, then we really are not talking about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. John came to bring knowledge, to understand. There's a temptation on pastors, elders, churches, you, as you share the gospel with people, there's a temptation to just not talk about that. Let's just talk about something else. It's unpleasant to talk about this idea of sin, the forgiveness of sin. But if you're talking about a gospel message that does not include forgiveness of sin and the reality of sin and offending a holy God, you're not talking about the same gospel. That's not what the gospel message is. I remember this line that I read many, many years ago from Michael Horton. If sin is not the problem, the cross is not the answer. And you can apply this in so many different ways. If sin is not the problem, if your lack of fulfillment is the problem, well, you can find something to fit that need. If your need for community is the real problem that you have in your life, you can find good friends to fulfill that need. There's all kinds of different problems, and if you don't identify the problem as sin, well, you don't really need the cross then to answer that problem. And so how you frame and how you answer the question, what is the problem in the world, the ultimate problem, I'm not saying there's not other things that we can deal with, but if the ultimate issue isn't sin, you're not going to end up at the cross because you don't need the cross. You can address those things in other ways. John came to deal with the problem of sin, to point people to Christ, who ultimately came to deal with sin. So praise of God, it's rooted in covenant history, motivates us for the mission so that we can go and serve. It's really about Christ, not about us. It's honest about sin. And then lastly, it's forward-looking. It looks forward to something in the future. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, the gospel story and the mission of Christ is viewed as this sunrise that's coming up and beginning to give light to the world. I've grown to love sunrises over the years. I'm not necessarily a morning person, but I've learned and developed that life just happens in the morning and you have to get up if you want to be a functioning adult in society for most people. So light is good, and there's something about the first of the day. And I've actually grown to appreciate the process of light coming up. Some of you guys may appreciate that as well. What would happen, 
What would it feel like if God just flipped on the light, like walking in a dark room and flipping on the light? It's like, oh, right? It, everybody has that. You're in a dead sleep, and somebody just comes in and obnoxiously you know, turns on the lights, and it's just all of a sudden bright. It, it doesn't work that way. Sunrises don't work that way. It's just this gentle light that just slowly creeps in, and it's kind of comforting. It's like, ah, the day's here. Some of y'all are like, I just wish I was in my bed. And I understand that as well. You can catch the sunset, same effect, opposite direction. So the sunrise, this light is good, and this light is beginning to dawn. That's how Zechariah envisions this. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. The light is starting to come. Light is good, helps us to see. And the analogy then, of course, is if you don't know Christ, if you don't have the light of God's word, for as enlightened as you might perceive yourself to be, and you might fancy yourself to be, in reality, you are wandering around in the darkness, and you may not even know it. You might think, I got all this figured out. But if you don't have the light of the word, you don't have the light of the gospel, you really don't. You don't have things figured out that you might think you have figured out. It's self-evident. Darkness is bad, light is good. And oftentimes we see this contrast that's set up in the scriptures. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the light that's come through Christ. And as we look at this rich song of Zechariah this morning, we see that Christ has come and the light has come and we can now have certain clarity to which we view life. It doesn't mean that we don't have questions anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes get confused. It doesn't mean oftentimes like the psalmist did that we don't cry out why and how long, O Lord. It doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean that we can't lament But what it does mean is that we have a certain north star that's fixed for us. We have a certain clarity about what life is, about our purpose, about what we're trying to do. We have a framework to live within. And that seems to be what Zechariah is holding on to here. You've been faithful. You've acted again in history. He points back, you've acted in compliance and in continuation of these covenants with David and with Abraham. You've brought these children now that are being born, John, and then in just the next section, Jesus, and then also he will bring this light. And so we see that they find themselves in the middle of history of redemption being played out. And so, Lord, we come now, 2,000 years later, looking back on these things, and we do see the light of the gospel that's gone out into the world. And we're thankful, Lord, that we can have that and have a part in that. Lord, for anyone here this morning who's perhaps considering some of these things, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, the issue of sin is our real problem, and the cross is the answer for that problem. Show them their need for you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.